This is L.A. Court Report, covering Southern California's boys' high school basketball scene, going to games, running events, hosting Zoom conversations, and now, the podcast. This is Steve Wax with LA Court Report. I'm here with Brad Enright, and our guest today is Loyola High School head coach Jamal Adams. Coach Adams, thanks for being with us today. Steve and Brad, it is great to be here. Great to see some familiar faces, some friendly faces uh, and voices, I should say, um, and looking forward to this conversation. Coach Adams, anyone who has attended Loyola High School understands that the primary mission of the school is to build each young man into being a person for others. So how do you as a coach serve as a catalyst of that mission? Oh, wow. That's a, a great question. I mean, I think um, I'll start with the idea that, right, um, I, I really do believe that this profession, um, and I'd, always, I'd actually call it a vocation, you know, I think I was called to do this, um, is really about setting an example. Um, I think that's the first thing, right? It's, uh, it's about setting an example of what it really means to be a, a man with and for others. And and that, that example is really um, something that I've been a big believer of for a long time is this idea of being um, belonging to something bigger than yourselves, right? How can you subjugate your own wants, desires, need, and ego, specifically in basketball, uh, for the betterment of, 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 of others? Um, as it relates to, you know, society, um, I think what we really call our students and our young men to really think about um, is uh, think about the marginalized, um, those that live on the outskirts of society, um, and, and to think about how we can be the light in their lives uh, to bring them to their full humanity. I, I'd even say, to be honest with you, before I get to the basketball side of it, Steve, like uh, I would say the last two or three, four years for me have been evolutionary, even when I think about that. Like when I went to Loyola, it was about doing your service hours, and a lot of that felt like charity. I think, I think it's 2020. Uh, where we really need to be thinking about and, and truthfully where, um, you know, my, in my role as the director of equity and inclusion, uh, we really looked at is the idea of advocacy. Like there's one thing to see that there's poor people or incarcerated people or, or homeless people or, or the denigration of our migrant brothers and sisters. Um, it's another thing and to, 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 you know, to offer them a helping hand. It's another thing to actually like think about what is the root cause of these inequities um, and how do we go about, you know, collating and cultivating power so that we could speak to those that can make those decisions and to actually change some of those, you know, policies, procedures, laws, and structures. And so that's really been the focus of that work. And then as it relates to the basketball piece, Waxy, uh, uh, you know, I've always felt like hoops is such a great microcosm of the real world, especially for young folks. And so, um, you know, I'm a just a big believer. I hope that in my 16 years as a head coach at Loyola, um, and even the, the, the eight or so with Jenny before that, you could say a Loyola basketball team played unselfishly. Uh, they played for each other. Um, that, you know, that um, folks really knew their roles and played to their strengths, right? If, if, uh, if a kid could shoot it, we're going to run a play for him to shoot it every time. And until they adjust, you know, if it means that he gets six shots in a row, I, I hope that our team um, can understand that that's the way that we need to play. Um, and similarly, defensively, right, that we play on a string and that we help each other. Like um, that journey um, and those type of, um, I think, lessons, particularly when those work well, if we're honest, right, when you're successful, 
Um, and kids can see that they can be a star in their role and they're part of a group that does something successfully. And they really, you know, one through 15 feel uh, uh, engaged in that process. Imagine what kind of citizens they're going to be, what kind of dads they're going to be, what kind of, um, you know, um, neighbors they're going to be, sons, husbands, uh, because they know what it feels like to actually really sacrifice and to see the greater good, you know, come to full realization, right? None of us get into this to lose. Uh, and, and Lord knows I like to compete, um, but particularly there's no greater satisfaction than like seeing, you know, a group of kids, multiple kids have a role, even the guys that don't play, like being engaged in the scout and shouting out the, the cuts and the, the box outs and the, and the down screens and the plays. Um, those are some of my best memories in, in my career. And I think going with that, one of my favorite Loyola memories is the greatest technical foul of all time was committed <laughs> by Loyola High. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, I still say, I think, uh, you know, not to brag or both, I think I am on all of three techs in my life uh, ever. Uh, and the one that I'm most proud of is, is, is I think the story you're talking about is for Austin Hatch. You That's know, correct. We, uh, we had the blessing of, uh, of having... Austin Hatch, I'll try and give the Reader's Digest version, but a young man who unfortunately lost uh, his, his, his family, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, in two fatal airplane crashes um, that left him um, in a coma for months on end. Um, and then he rehabilitated himself um, in a way uh, to try to re re resurrect his career so that he could go on to the University of Michigan and play hoops. And so he came to us as a senior um, you know, and uh, candidly, uh, when we got him in August and September, he was still struggling to really like run, catch and shoot. Um, you know, a lot of work. My, my dear friend Rashid Hazard, I uh, was a big part of that. We got Austin all the way to the point where he felt like he could practice. And then um, a game at Notre Dame <laughs> against my closest little brother, I would call him Vince Oliver. We're playing and we're playing well. That team that year was loaded and uh, we're up a bunch and, and I go down. I think that was the first night Austin actually put his uniform on. Before that, he was a little afraid to wear his uniform because he didn't want the expectations of people seeing him on the floor. But that night he felt like putting his uniform on. Um, I went down to the end of the bench. I asked him, you know, is this tonight? Uh, he said, yes. Uh, we went out there. Uh, we, <laughs> we ran a play. Um, candidly where we throw the ball to one side of the floor and set a double screen away and candidly the two kids that set the screens for him uh, cr created uh, committed the ultimate offensive fouls I and mean, they looked like uh, they were like pulling guards they never stopped their feet and they caught both of the Notre Dame kids he got a clean look I was right on line with it and he caught it and let it go I mean it was you know Disney movie the thing was bottom of the net and uh because we had all been intimately involved in like his journey, uh, I think honestly, um, a story that's not well known was maybe I think a week or two before that was his father's birthday. He was practicing. Like, I think we took a water break. I turned around and he was over, like leaned up against the bleachers, you know, quietly sobbing. Um, and Parker Jackson Cartwright and Tom Welsh walked over to him and they asked him what was going on. Uh, the next thing I know, the three of them are sitting on the floor, kind of all sobbing. The rest of the team was over there. Like it was, you know, we were we were engaged in his pain and uh, practice stopped and we all just kind of had a moment with him and we went our separate ways that day. And I think seeing him make that shot, we all knew what that meant to him. And so to that point, Steve, we ran on the court. We celebrated like we won the NCAA championship. The game was going on. 
they had to call a foul attack because I think all 16 players, managers, coaches were at half court hugging them and crying. Um, I apologize for a few seat events. Um, I apologize to the refs. Uh, and we took our tech and our medicine as we should. <laughs> I think that Vince completely understood. Yeah. Yeah, I think he does. He definitely, definitely. I think in the moment he wasn't quite sure what was going on. Uh, and then obviously afterwards he knew. And then obviously that made Sports Center, and we started doing interviews for Austin. And, and I think at the time we were like 16 and 0, and, and, and we went on a media whirlwind for about two days. Um, and then at home, uh, Coach Wilson and the Chaminade Eagles came in and waxed us, <laughs> just beat the snot out of us. And, uh, uh, we definitely uh, were probably living in a la-la land for a couple of days after Austin made that shot. Understood. I think you talked about in, when you were answering the first question was one of the hats you wear on campus is you're actually the school's director of equity and inclusion. I know that if we talked about everything you did in that role, that would be a separate podcast completely. <laughs> right, right. But can you maybe take some of the lessons you've learned about diversity, equity, and inclusion and relate them to how you run your basketball program? How has the DEI perspective enhanced your role as a coach? And then let's also hear about some of your activities bringing back the Black Coaches Association. Thanks, uh, Steve. Another, another awesome question, and I appreciate this opportunity. So I, I think, you know, in a nutshell, when people ask me what is my role as a director, uh, director of equity and inclusion at Loyola, it's, it's really about hopefully having people um, open up their minds, eyes, their hearts to the idea of living well together, right? That um, the idea that we do all come from diverse backgrounds, experiences, you know, we're all really just an aggregate of our lived experiences. And so with that comes biases um, and oftentimes prejudices and maybe worst case, um, you know, the republic, repugnant ideas around bigotry um, and, and or racism or homophobia or any of those things is that it's about like educating um, our community in a way um, that we could see the full humanity, I said that earlier, of every person. Um, and I would say that truthfully, I think because of the way I coach, it's what um, inspired me to want to pursue this position. You know, five or six years ago, we didn't have a spot. Um, candidly, I was discerning between leaving Loyola to go back and join uh, Kyle Smith's staff at Columbia. Um, and uh, my principal was like, we really don't want you to go. What could we do? And I had said that, you know, I had become really intimately um, following um, the Georgetown Reconciliation Project, right? Georgetown in the 1840s sold 280 of my ancestors, of you know, souls to keep the school afloat. And uh, they were going through the process of reconciling what that meant uh, for their school uh, to be involved in the, um, you know, in the slave trade. And, um, and one of the positions they created was the Director of Equity and Inclusion. So I was reading voraciously and finding out that all these other schools had this role. And so I said that um, if, if I stayed, I really wanted the opportunity to pursue this. Um, um, and, and again, I think it's because um, hoops, and you guys know this uh, from your experience, uh, is really one of the great microcosms of the world where we drop a lot of the pretenses we have in society about who is, you know, I always say this, like racism and bigotry are really just systems that try to tell us who deserves our love and who doesn't deserve our love, right? Um, and that when we get to this tribal idea, this idea that just because you look differently than me, um, I shouldn't love you or care about you and maybe even go as far as hate you. Um, there's no space for that in hoops. And uh, we've all had teammates, coaches, um, you know, uh, 
people around the game that we've gotten to know that are from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds, all religion. And it's all about, can we get a stop and can we put the ball in the bucket? Right. And I think really being a coach informed the idea uh, of what I wanted to do in that role. And, and to be honest with you, we've been very successful um, at Loyola, um, you know, not only um, at our own campus, but what I really the last two or three years um, have been able to spread my wings out and do, and lead some initiatives, um, both uh, regionally. So all the West Coast schools for the Jesuits have been a big part of uh, a couple projects, including the Let It's Home, which is called CORE, which is our collaborative organizing around racial equity. We built a whole toolkit and, and a reading list, and then even gone out and did 10,000 actions, uh, community organizing actions for racial equity. And then um, and then also sit as like uh, one of the national chairs for uh, DEI professionals for Jesuit schools, um, and we're going to do a big convocation this summer. So those keep me busy. Um, and then lastly, on top of that, um, I really appreciate in, in June, after kind of uh, the George Floyd um, uh, murder um, and um, and the requisite racial reckoning that we saw in our country, um, assistant coach, um, I think he's associate head coach, I believe, uh, Jason Hart at USC, uh, his dear friend, uh, professional athlete Pooh Jetter, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, we really want to bring back the Black Coaches Association that was created by the greats like uh, John Chaney, um, uh, John Thompson, uh, rest, is, rest in peace, uh, George Raveling, uh, Vivian Stringer, all of those guys, general, all those folks have been involved in creating the BCA back in the early 80s as a really a response to Prop 48 and some of the issues that were going on in the NCAA at that time. And, and we decided that, um, you know, for some reason, the trademark had passed or what have you, Pooh, um, with his attorney, was able to procure that. And we started launching, you know, Zoom meetings. Um, and really all we wanted to do was, was when you look at the landscape, right, um, basketball is, is a predominantly played by African-American uh, players at the collegiate and professional level and probably even at the high school level. However, if you look at the coaches, um, particularly head coaches at the professional and collegiate level, uh, those numbers have gone backwards, in fact. Um, and um, really our, our early part was just about coalition, about building strength, about getting to know each other and being able to call each other resources. Um, you know, going forward, 2021, we want to be a bit more proactive about an agenda to help maybe change some of those those numbers. But I would say most of this year, we have just gathered weekly on Thursday nights to hear from the great luminaries in our in our in our profession and to really to build coalition. And we went from, you know, I think our first call was about 20 of us uh, to now we have a membership um, list uh, that's north of 500 coaches all across the country. Even on Canada, we got a couple of European coaches that have joined us, and uh, we've had some unbelievable nights, including, you know, Coach George Raveling blessed us one night. Coach John Lucas blessed us another night with their insight. We've had, um, we've also centered women, um, we've had Cynthia Cooper and Cheryl Swoops, um, Tina Thompson, um, and Misha Curry join us, um, and uh, and even. Uh, we wanted to make sure we lifted up some of our brothers that that have um, unfortunately, you know, had 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 I don't even know how to say it because I mean they're they're my guys had a, an unfortunate I guess um, FBI NCAA deal um, you know and and I could talk about why, how unfair I think it is but we had uh, Book Richardson 
Tony Bland and Lamont Evans also speak to our group. So um, it's really been life-giving just to get to know, you know, my, even my own personal um, uh, reach has expanded, but really to hear, have a space where people can really t- talk about how hard it is to do their jobs in certain situations um, and, and, and care for our students. Obviously COVID has been a big part of our talks. Um, and, uh, and this is the community, like, I, I you know, um, I'll finish up the question, the, the answer by just saying like, probably one of the best blessings for me in 2020 has been the relationships that I've built with our executive board. So myself, Jay Hart, uh, Pooh Jetter, Tina Thompson, Damon Stoudemire, Tra- Travis DeCour, uh, um, Reggie Morris, and Lou Ritchie. Uh, those are my, that's my family. Uh, we have a group chat that just is like the best source of information and and love that I have in my life. And so this has been a, it's been a real blessing to kind of be in that space. Is being the director of equity and inclusion at a Jesuit institution different than it might be at a different institution? That's, I, I, yes. I believe that uh, because of, you know, our Jesuit charism, the idea that we talked about, the idea of being men and women for others, I think the Jesuits have oftentimes been the more progressive arm of the Catholic church. Um, and particularly in the last two years, I think the Jesuit, order the priests themselves with like the Georgetown project. There's another project out of St. Louis University in which they have found that historically the Jesuits were involved in the um, African-American slave uh, um, institution of slavery. Um, I've really been trying to reconcile with race themselves. And so um, in a real way, um, I think that the conversations are a bit more robust, uh, a bit more um, progressive. Um, and candidly, you know, as a African-American uh, man who's, you know, Loyola High, but I also got my master's from LMU, so I'm a double Jesuit uh, grad, um, you know, um, you know, I, I think it's really, I've been in a blessed position to really have my voice be elevated at the highest, highest reaches. I mean, I, um, in February, I helped running uh, training for all of our principals and presidents on the West Coast um, around race and racial equity. And uh, in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's great to be able to relay my experience. You know, growing up in LA, I was a public school kid before I went to Loyola. Loyola was the, uh, was my dad's, you know, idea, not mine. I went there crying. That was my dad's idea because he wanted me to go to what he thought was the best academic opportunity for me. Obviously it paid off with me being able to go to the Ivy League and play at Columbia, but um, I didn't know Loyola from anything you know, until I got there. Um, and then the place really formed me. Like, um, I am baptized Catholic, you know, about 11 years ago, it changed, you know, the way I look at faith. Um, and I do, you know, to, to answer your question more directly, Steve, I think it does help. I think non uh, faith-based schools and institutions have really struggled in 2020 with the racial reckoning. And I think, I think our faith gives us a moral compass that allows us to be a bit more aggressive and progressive. Thank you. You worked on Wall Street for 12 years before getting into coaching. What lessons did you learn from that stage in your life and how do you apply them to working with the young men in your program? Do you foresee any of the players you've had at Loyola making similar life decisions as well? Yeah, I guess the first lesson I learned is to always be closing right now. <laughs> Glenn Glary, Ross, <laughs> right? Like, honestly, I would say that I always say this, working on Wall Street was a blessing. And the blessing that it was more than anything for me uh, was twofold. One, it really enhanced my communication and skills. Like the ability to 
craft a message and go out and sell it. I think teaching and coaching and leading are, you know, cousins of salesmanship, right? Um, and and that, that ability to create a vision and then get people to buy into it. Uh, and then I would say the other second part of my dime on Wall Street, it told me what I didn't want to do, right? That ultimately uh, money didn't have to be at the center of my universe. Trust me. Um, I, I like the, the comfort creature, comforts of life like anyone else. And I like to have to be able to spend money for my family. And, you know, and I'm blessed. My wife and I got two college grads and, and a lot of debt. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm in a comfortable spot financially. But I also found that things are more important than that. Relationships um, uh, with people, I, I think, are the most important thing in the world. I always say um, to my students and to my players, I think your network is your net worth. Um, and I would hope that if anyone looks at my bank account uh, and, then, and then juxtapose it versus my, my Rolodex and, my, and, and who I know and love, uh, I hope that who I know and love is way more valuable than my bank account. Um, I would say a lot of students and my former players find themselves now in finance, right? And, and or I would say probably the strongest thing I get, Wax, now, you know, I've been a loyal a long time, 16 years as a head coach, and I think 22 or three, you know, with Jimmy, uh, you know, I'm an old man now. I got kids that I coach that have kids and are married. And I would say that the best part of that is the relationships I get is really about like, it's about manhood and, and, and fatherhood and, and being a husband. And, um, you know, I, I could go probably to now to tomorrow, some of the great conversations, um, you know, and the blessings, the weddings I'm going to, the, the young kids that, you know, call me Uncle Jamal or, um, you know, when it's all said and done, right, like, we can't take none of that stuff with us. Uh, money we can't take with us. But when they remember the three of us, hopefully it's going to be about the legacy and the people that we touch and who we help get, become better people. Um, and it might be the smallest thing. It could have been a smile or a word of encouragement or, or that we rolled up our sleeves and really helped somebody that was in a tough situation. Um, and so I really hope going back to even the first question, like, I really hope that um, more than like the words that I speak, that my actions, that my young men that play for me, look at my actions and go, well, you know, coach lives a good life. It's a life well lived. And that I, you know, hopefully that they'll want to emulate, you know, those actions more than even my words. So going with that, do you think coaching at Loyola allows you to further the mission of the school? Or does the mission of the school affect the way you coach basketball? Whew, that is a tough one. You know, it's like the chicken and the egg. I, I would say, um, I'm, uh, honestly, uh, I think the mission of the school informs the way that I coach. And it's the mission, and, you know, I'm blessed because I experienced it as a student. You know, I, I was born, you know, raised from boy to man to see the world uh, from this Jesuit prism. Um, it informed the way that I, I thought about my career at Columbia. Like I, when I look back, like the things that I did, even as a student at Columbia, getting involved in Harlem and, and different uh, social justice projects or community organizing projects, or even in college, those are all informed by my, my career at Loyola, right? And that, um, and even the yearning to come back and do it at Loyola at, at the expense of a lot of money that I was making in finance. Uh, those are all formed at Loyola, that mission, you know, I would say it's the way I live my life. And um, and then that informs everything. It informs the way I'm a husband and father, but especially as a coach, 
You know, I think I do very much believe, you know, especially now as one of the more veteran coaches at Loyola High, that our athletic department should be an extension of our mission. It should not, it should not be separate and apart. That our, our teams should carry on, uh, you know, be fiercely competitive, fiercely competitive, right? And that we should pour our hearts into being fiercely competitive. But we should do it with class. We should do it with uh, compassion. Right, for both our teammates and our opponents, um, and, and that we should conduct ourselves in a way um, that invites other people that, that see and have a similar idea and mission about their lives to want to join us. And, and, and that I would hope that um, the way that our teams interact uh, and the way that we play um, are the best calling card for future Cubs that want to come and play basketball. So the last question I would have is you're a Loyola High School alum. You're a Loyola High School coach. You're the father of a Loyola High School alum. What aspects of the Loyola High School experience do you think you could replicate elsewhere? And what aspects of the experience do you feel are unique to Loyola High? Wow. Well, um, you know, I think what I would say to, to, to that question, uh, Waxy, is that, like, I think um, the part that be, can be replicated, again, is, like, the um, care for the whole person. I really do believe like um, we would all probably survive COVID better um, and high school sports that we all love dearly could, could, could all improve by the idea that if we centered the kids a little bit more uh, and that we cared for our kids in a more holistic way versus them just making right-hand layups or left-hand in-and-out moves or down screens, like we really thought about helping, you know, Johnny and Pudgley uh, be the best people they could be. Um, you know, because we spend so much time with them and have so much influence in their lives as coaches, um, I think that that could be replicated anywhere. If I ever leave Loyola uh, and go to do something else in coaching or in education, the part I'm going to take with me is that, you know, I think the true love for each person and their humanity, you know, loving them for who they are and how they come to you um, is something that I would take uh, with me and I think can be replicated elsewhere. I think there's a lot of great institutions and truthfully a lot of great coaches that I consider my brothers that think the similar to me. Right. And that I watch them um, and they care for their kids. They'll call me to help one of their kids and I'll drop everything to do that because I know that they're truly invested in their students um, and students in their players' lives. Um, what I do think is unique uh, to Loyola truthfully is that just, we have 150 years plus of doing it. Right. And that, um, in, in some respects, it's a very well-oiled machine, well-funded, well um, you know, uh, we've got the resources, you know, I'm, I don't take for granted, um, you know, that I work at one of the best high school institutions in the world, um, and that I don't want for anything. If I have an idea, I have an athletic director that really supports all the things I like to do that have nothing to do with basketball, from our retreats um, and our outings to our community service, to the advocacy work that I do with our student athletes and our players supports all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I know at other places that may not necessarily be, be, be the case. I think um, truly this idea of caring for the, the full humanity of each kid and trying to get them to be uh, people that care about people greater than themselves um, is one of the unique aspects of Loyola and, uh, and really why I, I, I'm, I say this all the time. I think I might have the world's greatest job. I get to, you know, I'm a unique, complicated person, and Loyola, you know, I still teach econ and African-American studies. I coach. 
I'm running the DEI stuff. Um, and then I'm also in the conversation nationally. You know, I don't know how many other places I would be able to do all those things. And so um, I wake up knowing I'm, I'm super blessed, super, super blessed. And this would be a great time to thank you for your wisdom, for your candor, for your understanding, to wish the best to you and your family and wish all of our listeners a happy, healthy, and safe 2021. Thank you for tuning in to the LA Court Report podcast, an LA Court Report production.